to some passages or some, some portions of scripture we kind of have to read in a different way though correctly like I mean I I'm listening. You, you can't just blow through uh, certain parts in Leviticus like you can um, of, of course not what I'm saying though is is one standard of understanding symbolism and typology the symbolism and typology framework doesn't shift right in other words we have one standard for everything and then we get the prophecy and all of a sudden we're applying we're, we're disregarding all of that and we're we're kind of okay we've got to find new ways to understand this that's improper framework for looking at the scriptures it's one narrative one story one plan of God it's all singular we need to see it as that way and and that'll eliminate a great deal of the challenges that that we face when trying to understand scriptures that also tells us that there's more to it than just recognizing I'm a sinner I need Christ to forgive me of my sins and I need to be able to go to heaven right that's a framework for redemption very simplified but there's a greater story here we don't become Christians simply to go to heaven but we come we become Christians to be restored to do what God created us to do to glorify God and enjoy him forever and in glorifying God that is doing the work that he created us for he created all of us for a particular purpose he created all of us uh, for um, a particular plan and and there is the general purpose of mankind men and women right and then there are the particulars of how we work that out that's more of the individual level like I, I'm not going to be Donald I can't walk over uh, to uh, Andrews and get in an Air Force jet and fly it away I say Andrew I said I meant Donald Did I say? Okay. you said Andrews Andrews Air Force, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was like, wait a minute, I no, called him the sense. wrong name. No, but I, I'm not going to be able to go fly a jet plane, right? That's a calling that God's given Donald. Um, you might find somebody like our brother Ken in the back who can fly aircraft and fix all kinds of things and, and do what, you know, he's, he's sort of a jack of all trade and, and a master in quite a few. But, but my, my point there is, is we all have different things that God has called us to do individually, but there's a general call um, in, in creation order of um, glorifying God, and that is to um, take dominion, be fruitful, and multiply. And, of course, that's not just, I always want to say this, that's not just about having kids. That's certainly a part of it. But what are we doing to take what God has given us, and how are we extending God's kingdom? In that, and so this is all. So far, this is all just way of introduction to today's topic. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of dispensationalism, um, and and just if you recall when we were talking about looking at end things or eschatology, that we talked about. There's three general views, right? There is the uh, the Amil, which is you know relatively uh, understands the work of Christ. Um, but still has a, a little bit, parts of it, pessimistic in terms of the world's just going to get worse and worse and then God will come back. There is post-millennialism, which is uh, tied to an optimistic view of the lordship of Christ and the work of the church. Um, 
in so much as going and making disciples of all the nations. Uh, and that is not on just a little scale. And in reference to a question that came up not long ago in, in regards to the narrow and wide gates and the appearance of simply, well, only a handful of people are saved. And of course, we're not saying every person is saved, but, but Jesus was speaking to people in judgment. He was speaking judgment in that discourse where he makes that distinction between narrow and wide. You know, sometimes people get all nervous when you start talking about, um, you know, what do you mean Christians are, are you know, there's going to be a lot of them. That all of a sudden that you say that, that all of a sudden you are meaning that, um, you know, people can do whatever they want. No, there's, there is, as, as it says in James, show me faith without works. That is a faith that's dead. It's not resurrected. It's not transformed by Christ. Um, we always get worried about the ditch. If you say this, man, you're in that ditch over there. If you say that, you're in this ditch over here. And instead of saying, okay, there's a balance in Scripture about how to live our lives, and it's about living it um, here and now in the world that w in which God created us. Um, so I want to point out a couple of things. Um, the, uh, let's talk about quick sensationalism. How many of you guys remember uh, back a few years now, this might have been 20. I can't remember exactly when it was, 2019, maybe 2020, something like that. Um, there was uh, a, a group of uh, Catholic students that came up to Washington, D.C., and um, there was some sort of exchange between uh, one of the students and a, uh, another man. And all of a sudden, within 30 minutes of this situation, um, a huge uproar occurred. Right, and uh, when you watch the little video clip um, that was first presented, it showed one thing, and when you suddenly had other angles, it clearly demonstrated another thing. Right? Anybody want to guess why um, that is? Why did that happen? They want to get a point of view across. Okay. What, what's the what's the premise going on here? Propaganda. Propaganda. Well, Christians are confrontational, and um, in your face, and uh, so so. That, that's right. So Proverbs 18:17 tells us the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. That is, according to the scriptures, goes and finds other witnesses. But why did why did this travel so fast? Is yeah. that Proverbs 18:17. 18:17. 18, um, well, why did this travel so fast? Media. So God has given us wonderful tools of the internet, of computers, of the ability to video phone. I mean, look, when I was growing up, it was unimaginable that you would walk around and be able to take such high-quality videos anytime you wanted. And then instantaneously send it out to the world. Every time there's a, a positive move in technology, we, as human beings, 
and even those in the church struggle to make good use of it, right? It's about maturity, right? It's about in all things. What happens? You hear, okay, I need to treat something with responsibility. I got to treat it well and all of this. And then we find ourselves uh, in another place where um, we find that uh, we fail and, oh, we got to get after it and do it better. And, and you know, humankind it takes us a long time to work through those. So how many of you guys grew up in a... A church that was, well, first of all, how many guys are second-generation Christians? You were born going to church. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, I understand that. The, so the second question is, how many of you guys, the, the first church that you were either born into or that you started attending, um, held the same, you, you hold the same views today that you did then? Raise your hand. You hold the same exact views in every area. Pretty much. How many, raise your hand. How many we got in the crowd? One? Anybody else? No? Okay. I, I simply say that to say it, it is important that we examine the scriptures, right? Because the person who speaks first, albeit the first group of people that we come to know Christ with, or the church we're born into can have great influence upon us, right? So when we come to this idea of dispensationalism, that there are seven dispensations after the start of the church, each kind of attached to one of the seven churches in Revelation, um, and and this understanding, um, it is important that as we examine uh, church history and doctrine, and as we examine the scriptures, that we come to know that this is a relatively new idea. Now, there's always been a certain amount of, in the church, uh, pessimism, like the world is hard, there's difficulties, there's all of this. But, but when we go back and look at the early um, apostolic writings, um, we can see with uh, Polycarp and, and others uh, a real... Uh, negative look on things but when we look for statements of hope and in terms of what God is going to do in terms of reaching the nations we see statements of hope in Origen, Eusebius Athanasius and Augustine all early church fathers as a matter of fact the the general view was that the church would would, empires would rise and fall the church would remain, I know you've heard me make that statement, for about 1,800 years of the church's existence. It's not until 1830 where um, a guy named Darby comes along and he starts collating particular odd ideas from a few places in church history that we begin to have a different perspective. Uh, he was part of the Plymouth uh, Brethren and, and in that, what he was doing is, is uh, taking a little bit of sensationalism from a, a lady down the road from him and, and who was seeing visions and applying them to Scripture. And I do certainly believe that it is possible in some rare occasions that God reveals things, but it is very important that anything that we hear, we put to the test of Scripture. 
So if it's extraordinarily different than when Scripture appears to say, we need to put it under particular scrutiny. So Darby begins this, and, and, and he begins, the, there, there are all these, people are able to move a little bit around better. We, we have the, the uh, inventions of the train. So the train starts being able to move people around. Um, the telegram uh, uh, comes around this time, 1830s, 1840s. You see this whole development, people moving around. There's something else that's happening during this time as well as in terms of technology. That is the ability to print things in a, in a fast and less expensive manner, right? We know that up until Gutenberg, having all scriptures were hand copied. It isn't until that point that the Bible can be printed over and over again and we can, we can get it into the hands of, of all people, right? And again, I would argue that we have to be careful about technology, uh, there's a very interesting book, I encourage you to read it, um, called um, the, it, it is called the uh, Revolt of the Public, excuse me, Revolt of the Public. Uh, for those of you that know who Gary North is, in the, in the last waning years of his life, Gary North said everybody ought to read this book, but basically... Um, the Revolt of the Public, in that book, what, what the author does is he, he ta starts taking a look at the rise of the ability to uh, communicate in printed form. And you see this all the way back um, in pamphlets that were being printed uh, in relationship to the French Revolution and what was happening with the Enlightenment. And then following that, as more things were being printed, some good, some bad, there suddenly became this desire to control the informational narrative. And there's a big rise of that um, from both educational and political aristocracy that develops um, throughout uh, history and gets more and more active. Uh, and it's very fascinating. And he, 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 he follows this narrative all the way through uh, until 2014, and then following the 2016 election, the author comes back and says, well, there's more information here. I wish he would come back and do, an, do an, an, another edition, but, but he might just be wore out from uh, looking at this. But I think it's very interesting to consider, um, and we need to think about this as Christians, right? There, there was a huge move um, in the in the 50s and 60s, the development of the Christian printing in terms of Christian bookstores. Today, they're virtually non-existent because everybody's going online or going to private publishing houses. Everybody's publishing their own things, and you just go to their website and order their books. But, but all this ties into the fact that Darby influences a guy named Schofield. Anybody heard of Schofield? Okay, and he produces, he actually does something very significant and actually... I think very important, although in his case, um, very agenda-driven, and of course there's no such thing as no agenda, but he, does, he creates the Schofield Study Bible. And I think it's important that we do recognize some of the positive things uh, in relationship to what he does for study Bibles. How many guys have a study Bible today? Okay, so Schofield is the first guy um, in, in about 300 years to actually put the commentary on the same page with the scriptures. Okay, he comes in there. There's, there's one other early edition of, of the Geneva Bible where there's some commentary right below. But 
What's that? Yeah, I I can't. I'm not in my research. I didn't come across that, but maybe it's associated with it. Turn of which century? So so it's not, if it's the turn of the if it's the turn of the 20th century, it's going to be associated somewhat with Darby here because this is when he's doing his work at the end of the, the 19th century coming into the 20th century and and what but he does some very significant things in terms of you know sometimes in some Bibles you see in the it's either on the margins or it's in the middle there are all these associated verses he's a, he's really he's credited as being one of the first ones to do that and create all this cross-referencing in this um, and it's very interesting to say, and of course it's difficult to, uh, to take a look at, at seeing how this plays out uh, in accuracy, but it is suggested that between the first publishing um, in uh, the early stages of World War I and its final stage in, uh, uh, or, or re- revision in 1917, that uh, there is... Uh, he sold nearly two million copies of that. Yes, Schofield. Have you heard that? Have you ever heard the saying, "If it ain't a stony, it's a pony"? Oh no, no. So I don't know what to do with that. So, uh, but but I do understand part of what you're you're driving at is it comes out, it's very popular, and you think about the amount of people there may be in the United States or even in Great Britain. And you add those numbers together and you talk about household numbers, selling 2 million copies of that is pretty substantial in terms of influence. Um, and, of course, um, part of what they're doing is they're, they're taking these ideas of, of Darby and these dispensations and this development of uh, this, this idea that the church is going to be um, taken out of the world. The world is going to come to a cataclysmic end. And it really um, faces a, a, different, a different look. I will point out, I, I don't think I have time here this morning, but there's a, uh, a, an interesting book called The um, Puritan Hope. Anybody read that book? Anyone? Okay. Um, it, it's, it's a very good book, but, it, but basically it's showing um, through a great deal of the, the sermons and works of the Puritans their optimistic view of um, the, the church discipling uh, the nations. And so uh, we, we then, that kind of brings us along uh, into people like Hal Lindsey in the 70s, and I think I brought this up before. You know, as you go through World War I, if you go through World War II, um, you go through the 50s, the, the rise of the idea that we're going to destroy ourselves with uh, nuclear weapons, we're going to go through and uh, destroy the environment. You see, at the same time, Hal Lindsey is pushing this cataclysmic end of the world and that there's no other way for it except for Christ come back and he destroys the world and rebuilds it, is uh, the, the same narratives going on in environmentalism and getting all kinds of, of play in that way. And, of course, again, I'll say, if you've not been here with me or you haven't heard me say this, 
We are called by God to be good stewards of the world he's given us. We should take care of it. When we realize that we're polluting it, we should look for ways to correct that. I am not about not being a good steward. I am for that. Um, but that, there's also a difference between that and, and saying, um, you know, human beings are a disease on the earth and we need to eradicate ourselves for the sake of the planet um, is uh, absolutely against God and Scripture. So we, we want to look at that. Now, I want to point out how Lindsay guys like um, Pastor Hagee or Tim LaHaye and their, their views and a great many others is this. If we held them to the biblical requirement of prophets talking about what's going to happen, when it is, and who is what, um, as the church, at the very least, we should have discarded their stuff, burned it all, and and yelled really loud because God says, if you make a prophecy, you call yourself to be a prophet, and you make a prophecy, and it doesn't happen, that you should disregard that person, hands down. And so you see it continually. There, there's a lot of criticism against the church right now because, you know, there's lots of people that say, I gave up on the church because all the prophecies I heard my whole life growing up, um, they never happened, Okay. And, and the reason that is, is because they're starting from a faulty premise and they are working off of sensationalism. As much as we have criticism for others looking at something quickly and making a quick decision, right? We, we have all kinds of criticisms of others. We apply this same thing in the church. And what I am telling you as, as, as a pastor, as a teacher, I want to encourage you, God is not changing. He has one story of redemption he has one plan. It's expressed to us in his word, the Bible. And we need to understand that because of God's grace, he is slow to judgment. That's good for us, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest, right? It takes us time to develop. Let God and his spirit do the work. Preach, teach, be kind. Lead others in truth. But be careful. There's a couple of things about dispensationalism, and it, I want us to, to uh, take a look at just understanding that it has to presuppose a late date for the book of Revelation. All right? So for ah-mill and post-mill, um, those as opposed to dispensationalism, um, we see that Revelation was, was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and the, the issue with dispensationalism is they say that it, it happened afterwards. And, of course, there are no dates written on the books of the Bible, but there are some real issues, and we're going to tackle some of this in our, in our scriptural, um, looking at things out of, uh, out of Matthew 23 and 24 next week as we talk about this in terms of um, you know, the, the, his soon appearing and all of these words. Um, this will happen quickly, all of these things, what they mean and how um, we need to understand that. This also, as I've already mentioned, presupposes that there is, they would, they, what's that? What presupposes? I, well, first of all, dispensational presupposes an early dating of Revelation. Mm-hmm. The, the second thing is that it presupposes, what? Late. A late, yes, I'm sorry. A late dating. 
So uh, as basically later early is tied to the destruction of Jerusalem. So if you're an early date, it's before the destruction of Jerusalem um, in 70 AD. Late date would be after. It also, uh, dispensationalism presupposes that there is disunity in the narrative of Scripture. They, as, as um, Darby and Schofield would say, you have to rightly divide the word of truth, and there's the stuff over here uh, in the New Testament, and there are things in the Old Testament, and um, they, there's, there's a different plan of God in bo- on both sides of that. And, and that is actually um, incorrect and leads to all sorts of errors. Um, yes? So there's a book called Dispensationalism, uh, Wrongly Dividing the People of God by Keith Matheson, Ligonier. And in there, he argues that if you go back and read what the early dispensationalists said about themselves, their fundamental distinction Which is very interesting because that's going to bring me to my next point, which dispensationalism wrongly dividing the people of God. Question mark. Keith Matheson was the That that's the one you you. you uh, well, it, he's got that. Then he wrote one on postmillennialism. Okay. And he's got another book called From Age to Age, which kind of commentary on the Bible from the eschatological so I, I have a question because this actually plays into exactly, this was actually my next point, plays into exactly what uh, he's bringing up here, Rick, and that is um, there, there is predominantly, you could almost even say, one heresy that, that um, the, the apostles when writing, uh, doing their writings of the New Testament, that they're dealing with. Anybody know what that is? Judaizers. Judaizers. Which is what? What's uh, the point of that? Got to get circumcised. Got to follow. So the the Gentiles who are being brought in have to follow the same laws that the Jews do ceremonially. But the, but there's a, a clear distinction between peoples. Yeah, kind of a two tiered subscription service. So there's a, there's a there's a two tiered. <laughs> that that I mean, but that's precisely what it is. They had this view of. There, there are the Jews, and there are, if, if you want to call them believers, the Gentiles would fall into the second category of God-fearers. And if, if you recall last week in the sermon, we talked about, and it's going to come up just in the introduction today, but the, but the, um, the levels of separation, the degrees of separation that, that you see. Um, but, but the points of those degrees of separation was what? In other words, so there were there were the 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 pagans, unbelievers. There were the God fearers. There were Israel. There was the the Levites, and there was the um, the high priest, right? And the, the the whole point of those that were being faithful to God were to what? Be ministers to the world, to be preaching the gospel, to be the ones that are. Uh, interceding for the world and, and teaching and discipling the world. That was the call of all of Israel, right? And, and that's where, if you, if you, if you take that, uh, those ideas and you start reading through the Gospels, you're going to see Jesus at all these points. This is what he's addressing. 
their failure to be obedient to God, right? And then after Christ, where there's no more need for the animal sacrifices, right? That now there's no more distinction between Israel and Gentile believers. And you see, and you see that's the argument over and over. And it isn't just Paul, even though he's, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. You see it elsewhere, all through the, the New Testament. That's the whole point of Pentecost, right? It's, it, it destroys the, the uh, disunity of the world and creates one people. Yes? I'm not arguing with you, but this sure. one, thing, one verse that does come to mind, I, I think it's Paul. I don't remember which book. I think it's taking a collection for the believers in Jerusalem who mm-hmm. would almost certainly be primarily Jewish believers. And he, he does seem to be making a distinction that, like, they're the root of your faith, so you should really dig deep and give them, give them a lot of money. I know they were also under probably heavier persecution maybe than Christians further out in, in the Roman realm. But uh, well, well, you, how, uh, how would that verse so I, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, about so... Excuse me. I, th- I think the first thing that you need to recognize is who was persecuting them. It wasn't the Romans. The Jews. The Jews, right? Who, which part of the Jews? Was it all the Jews? Pharisees. The Pharisees and really those that were clinging to power, the, the high priests, the Sadducees, who don't even believe in the resurrection, they saw Christianity as, as this thing that was going to potentially uproot them out of power. And, and so th- there's... Just if you walk with me on, on thinking that through a little bit, you know, where, where it talks about how they sold their lands and they had everything in common, that wasn't about socialism. That was actually about recognizing that um, their heritage was no longer tied to the land as it had been prior to Christ, right? So some of those things were changing and that they needed to, as Jesus told them in, in Matthew, to be ready to flee when destruction is coming. They had to liquidate their assets. That's right. And, and at the same time, some of them are staying in Jerusalem and around that area for what purpose? Ministry. To minister and evangelize the people that were there. Um, and and um, many came to know Christ and many perished in their utter rebellion. Um, as a matter of fact, you see later on what Paul does is to, to, to distance himself. He, he appeals to Rome to be his protector so he can continue to, to proclaim the gospel. Um, and, of course, they continue to rage um, against, uh, against Rome. And, and, of course, as, as you look at this further, and, and I, I keep thinking I've, cre- I've got seven more lessons laid out, and I'm thinking... I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I can do justice in, in that amount of time. But I, I think it's very important for us to recognize that... Um, yes, sir? Um, a group like Jews for Jesus, they, they, they make like a distinction for Messianic Jews. Mm-hmm. That's something special. So is that wrong? So um, that's a little bit complicated. I think we need to get into Romans... 9, 10, and 11 probably to, to, to spend a lot. But, but I will answer it in this way. Um, we should be kind and generous to all those who are unjustly um, persecuted. Okay? 
the idea of there, there's two things. There, there, are, there have always been Zionists within the Jewish community that have wanted a, a reestablishment of the political Israel. And with the rise of dispensationalism through printed materials and television, media, and other things, um, it's been easy to get Christians to simply say, we need to do things to help reestablish that. You know, the, the biggest thing that I'd say, nobody can point to anywhere in the scriptures that say um, that after the destruction of the temple, that the temple will be rebuilt. That's not in the scriptures anywhere. Nowhere. And so, but yet we, we, we interject those things based off of our philosophy of uh, how we think the world's going to play out. What was he talking about? His body. That's right. And that, that Jewish people thought was the biggest, perhaps the biggest step to recognizing that Jesus is the Lord. He is the, the royal son of David. But, but the, right, I totally agree with you, but that's not associated with, with rebuilding the temple. And, and of course, and, and we can talk about this further, but remember, Jesus shows up. Um, and, and does as the Levites' priests would have done, looked and found um, uncleanness in the temple, just like the Levite would have gone into a house and inspected it. And then finally, after fo- following, if you look at the, the Levitical direction, um, it says if you go back the second time and you find um, that uh, uncleanness growing in there again, you tear it down and not one stone will be left on top of itself. So when Jesus and Matthew is talking about, and he goes back to the, the temple a second time, finds that they haven't repented, that they're still continuing to operate in an ungodly and idolatrous way, he then says, this judgment's coming on you. okay? And he's not coming back. And he doesn't go back to the temple. And then within one generation, as he said, the temple was torn down and not one stone was left on top of each other. That's a f- Are you saying that dispensationalists say there will be a dispensation in which the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem? Yes. Okay. Can you list the whatever number of dispensations dispensationalists say there are? I don't have that in my notes here today, and I would rather do it uh, more accurately. I'm happy to do that next week okay. um, or provide a, uh, a hot sheet, if you will, with that. Um, but I would want to point out if I, if I print it off, that I'll mark it loudly as, uh, you know, extra biblical on the paper. Well, and I and I grew up in in a movement all about this, looking at all these things. I understand there were all kinds of problems that I was finding looking through the scriptures, trying to develop things, you know, the, the, but I, I think it's important to consider the narrative story through all of this. If you, if you understand, this is why I keep talking about this through New Eyes book, if you understand what's happening in the Old Testament, right, you understand what God is, 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 is uh, teaching us, and then you, you apply that to what Jesus is saying, like what I just did in terms of not one stone on top of another, applying the Old Testament clearly, and, and these images are, are there. This, it's, it, they're not disconnected. 
It's one, it's, it's one thought. And what are the, according to the scriptures, what are the stones of the new temple? We are the people, right? So, 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 right. So, so if we, if we, if we, if we look at that, it's not about a geographic location. It's not about stones hewn out by human hands any longer, right? Because Jesus is the cornerstone um, hewn by what hand? God the Father's hand, right? Yes. Well, so my first question would be, there's, there's two approaches to that question, right? Okay. One is, um, are, the, are these particular Jewish rabbis Christians? I imagine there may be some, right? Um, and then secondly, not that we can't take a look at their, their um, historically, we can look at things and say um, that, uh, can we learn from any of their commentary? Sure, there's things we can draw. But, but we better make sure that it's within the guidelines of Scripture. See, a lot of, a lot, not, ex- not exclusively, but a lot of um, the teachings are oral traditions. Some of them are now written down, but are detached from the Scriptures themselves. Right? So they've turned their commentaries to the same level as they might treat the Scriptures themselves. And we need to be very careful with that. Somebody had something they were going to say? He said it's like the Hadith. The Talmud is, yeah. you, know, you can't understand the Bible unless you understand the Talmud. Yeah. So um, I, I just, the, there's, there's uh, the, the point that I want to make here is for us to understand, um, I, I'm laying it out, and it seems like I'm, I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time um, in our, our general discussions um, simply beating up a, a different view. I want us to take a look at the hard scriptures, but I thought I think it's important for us to recognize how these things have had a great influence in the church, um, and we we need to be real careful. And I would almost argue, don't do it at all. To try, well, I definitely say this: don't don't look at the headlines and say, how do we make the scriptures? Um, interpret the headlines what's in the media what's in print but rather say um, you know how do the scriptures tell me to live in these in these times that's different yes I just wanted to share something it's not an exact answer to you Mark but I spent four months in Israel and the bulk of the the main conversation in, in Israel does not revolve around rabbis at all it's an incredibly secular nation and my experience time and again was they put on a big smile when the dispensational Christian tourists come, but and they get a whole lot of money from them. But then they're like, "Man, those guys are idiots." They just hate, they, you know, they, you know. So there's there's just enough, you know, got to please the tourists. Right. But they're viewing it in a completely secular power grab kind of way. And you know, I think that they are better than a lot of the other nations in that area. But they do some ruthless, terrible things themselves uh, so um, but the conversation is not driven by what they think the Bible may say on it so it's fine Lord and and you know I, I, I don't have any reason at this point to say look at Darby or Schofield and say 
um, they weren't Christians. I haven't come across anything that, to make me say that. And I want to again reiterate to all of you as we go through these things, um, we need to count our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who haven't come and, and to an understanding of Scripture this way, who haven't looked at it. They're merely living as you and I have for so long. You know, you know what you know. You know what's been presented to you. And so be gracious, be kind, be patient. God took you through a journey to get you where you are. Um, be that uh, way towards others. And, and remember that we're called to that, right? To be consistent um, in the same generosity God has given us uh, with others. Um, that doesn't mean God, of course, He, drive, he draws uh, moral distinctions and, and how to live. Uh, but we don't get much done by swinging the hammer of truth and beating people to death with it. Okay, we're we're called to take that hammer and build with it, be constructive with it. Yes. So I'm, I'm certainly not going to pretend to be the uh, resident scholar on brethrenism. He's sitting in the back left back there, my left. <laughs> he has some family there, so he has, he, has some, he has a little bit better understanding and interaction with them. But the two-kingdom theology, is I'm going to tell you, that's exactly what got us uh, the, the shutdown of the churches at every turn. Now, again, I'm, I'm just telling you, and that's really an outworking of taking a few ideas that weren't that great from, from Luther, and I love Luther, right, and, and created this whole two-kingdom view of things and because, because we, never, we don't do well with maturity. We think two kingdoms, one always has to be subservient to the other, right, instead of thinking, well, they work hand-in-hand hand and they're all under God. And one can call the other one out to a degree in one sense or another. Well, the, the, the church and the government. In other words, there's, it's the civil magistrate versus the church. That's right. That's right. That, you're, you're correct. That's the proper view. But, but that's, that's, that's a view that's held in a great many churches and has led to a lot of difficulty. All right. Yes. Mm-mm. He he had a view of. Can you repeat the question? I couldn't understand it. Yeah, repeat the question. That, I thought Luther's, Luther's two kingdom view was more like here on earth and heaven. No, Luther's. Lu- <laughs> it's all right. Luther's two kingdom view, um, as 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 I'm discussing it here, is about an, an understanding that um, the the church should exist in its column. And the civil government should exist in their column, and there shouldn't be 
any transference there. That only works if you have, uh, to use, to use uh, parlance from Luther's day, a pious prince, a faithful Christian people in the civil magistrate. But, but what we've done is in, in, our, in our culture today, we, we've come into a place where um, it's been corrupted. I know it's time. Thank you. It's, it's been corrupted to say that our faith, absurdly so, our faith should have no place um, in, in the civil government or in the, quote, marketplace. And that's utterly ridiculous. Of course. I understand that, but it's been co-opted by humanism. All right. Next week, we'll be hitting a few topics out of the scriptures from Matthew um, 23, 24, as well as talking a little bit about uh, the doctrine of Satan, um, because we need to understand that a little bit as well. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your great blessings, for the faithfulness of your word, that you are ever unchanging. Lord, we, we lay ourselves before you because we can't save ourselves. We're not capable of being delivered from the bondages of sin. We rejoice in the work of your servant, your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we look forward to the renewal of your covenant promises to us. In Jesus' name, amen.